Therefore, siblings in Christ, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Some of you may recall, I've been taking a course uh, called Clinical Pastoral Experience. And basically it's a class about how not to let your own baggage get in the way of your attempts to care for people. I know I can hear y'all going, finally. But since I would not planned on taking the course, I was a little resistant to the whole thing. So, for example, when we were required to submit three goals for ourselves, I didn't say anything like, I'm going to come to terms with my need for my father's approval or anything like that. Nothing, nothing uh, that would require some emotional investment. No, my first goal was time management. Straightforward, pragmatic, shallow. Nothing that would require emotional investment or addressing my inner child or any of that business. But it turns out, that's a pretty complicated goal. I figured the big revelation would be that I needed to stop arguing with idiots on Twitter and focus on stuff that was more essential. But I haven't been on Twitter in months. Did I focus on what was essential? I don't know, what's, what's essential? So now I actually am having to reckon with my father. You know, I, wor- I worry about, am I doing the job as well as he did? He was also a pastor. But the job he did was so much different. I mean, sure, he had a good deal of demands on his time, but the range of things was far more limited. I mean, this past week, I spent a couple hours updating our website, an hour trying to figure out the coding that would allow me to embed uh, a Google form into into MailChimp, a couple hours on the the grant application, uh, an hour designing some signage. Meanwhile, my dad would use that time reading a book. Which of those things is essential? Where was time wasted? Trying to embed that Google form in the MailChimp, that was a waste of time. Anyway, the church in the United States is in an anxious time. You know, how many churches do you think would say, hey, we would love it if the trend line of the last 20 years continued for the next 20 years? That would be great for us. I think very few. Now, some would say that the problem is in part that pastors aren't focused on doing the things that they used to. Others would argue that if we continue to do the job as we've always done it, we're going, these trend lines are just going to continue. We're going to get the same results we have been getting. 
So how do you manage your time when so much has changed, when so much is changing? How do you know what's essential and what's a waste of time? Now, at this point, you might be thinking, you know, I thought this class was about not letting your baggage get in the way of your attempts to care for people. Fair enough. I'll stop talking about my baggage. I mean, it's my issue, but it's not just my issue. After all, time is something we all have to learn to manage. And it is something we are called to manage in a way that demonstrates our calling in Christ, our shared mission. Did you focus on what was essential in that effort? Did you use your time to reflect your commitment to advance the gospel in your work, in your relationships, in your own soul? Those aren't easy questions. Over the years, lots of people have offered their answers to what you should see as essential. But if anyone thinks the answers are simple, then they're oversimplifying the questions. How we answer those questions, it changes as our lives change. And our lives have seen so many changes. That's why we need places like this, to keep asking those questions, to keep revising our answers, to ensure that we don't waste the time we're given. After all, we don't get a second chance. People need places like this, but the trend lines for places like this are cause for concern. Maybe part of what places like this need to do is to remind ourselves that our situation really is nothing new. The churches in Jerusalem were seeing the trend lines. They found themselves in an anxious time. Things were changing. And the changes weren't encouraging. You may have noticed in our scripture reading that apparently some have decided to not gather with the church anymore. It felt like a misuse of their time, too risky, given the troubles that were on the horizon. You know, by and large, we think of Advent as a season that prepares us for Christmas. That's, I mean, we decorate for Christmas. And it is that, but it's not only that. It is a season that prepares us for Christ's return, a season that anticipates the fulfillment of promises described in our text last week, a world in which no one needs to mansplain the reality of God's presence. The reality of God's presence will be as evident as the reality of air. That's the world we are anticipating. So it is a season in which we anticipate a world very different from the world we know now. A world of troubling trend lines, new variants on a deadly virus, and maniacs who plow into parade routes. The tension felt by those churches in Jerusalem is a tension we continue to feel. The world as it is, the future we see coming is at odds with this promised future. It may be easier just to, if we 
if we use as Advent simply to focus on Christmas. Because after all, that is a promise that has already been fulfilled. And, and we, can sort of, we can picture that. We can make decorations uh, pointing to that. But we haven't fully celebrated Christmas if we don't connect the birth of that promised child to the unfulfilled promise of a new world. Jesus is the beginning of that world. The beginning of a world in which the divine presence is indistinguishable from material reality. That's who Jesus is. He is that world in a person. He's a microcosm of that unfulfilled promise, a glimpse into that future. Jesus is that, and he's more than that. Because he's the means by which that promised future becomes a reality. His death and resurrection secure that future. He ascends to heaven and sends the Holy Spirit to continue the work in and through us. You know, here is, in a sense, is the answer to the question of whether we are managing our time appropriately. Are we open? Are we open to the ways in which the Holy Spirit is making that promised future a present reality in our own lives and in the lives of others? But again, what, the, what does it mean to do that? What does it mean to do that in an age of so much uncertainty and change? About 20 years ago or so, reality TV producers sort of first hit on a formula that still seems to work today. You find an individual or family in some sort of crisis, outdated home, outdated wardrobe, unruly offspring, unruly pets, whatever. Then you bring in some sort of charismatic guru to intervene and either fix the situation or instruct the individuals on how to fix the situation. And then you end the show with that family or that individual transformed, and if possible, a little weepy, because that's great television. You know, when I, was, uh, when I had just become a parent, there are two shows that followed that formula with regard to how to parent. Uh, Super Nanny and uh, Nanny 911. You remember those? I, I, I liked them. The crisis was, and that, and that they, they, these out-of-control kids, the nannies provided parents with various tips and techniques and implemented various sort of um, punishment reward systems so that by the end of the show, you'd have these well-behaved kids. And I, I liked the show. And I was surprised when my then-wife said she was, oh, she's listening on the radio, and this author was just going off about these shows. Uh, and she, in fact, went and ordered the book, Unconditional Parenting. She read it and insisted I read it, and I was skeptical. But now I count that book among uh, the few that really changed my life. After the Bible, of course, just but anyway, yeah. But he point. But one of the things that Elfie Cohn is his name. One of the things that he points out is that the appeal of parenting tips and techniques and punishment and reward systems is that they promise to get your kid to behave a certain way. But he says that's not parenting. 
to parent, you have to engage your kid. You have to try to understand what's going on inside. You have to help them understand what's going on inside. And when you resort to just some parenting technique, none of that matters. It's just about behavior and misbehavior. It doesn't matter what's, if what's prompting the behavior is fatigue or shame or fear or simple misunderstanding. None of that matters. You just need to stop that behavior and get this behavior implemented. And if, you, if that's all you do, then the fatigue or shame or fear or ignorance or whatever just goes unaddressed and it often gets worse. In other words, tips and techniques, they don't help you parent. They help you avoid parenting. Now, some of this can be applied to how we think about our own lives, our own attempts at managing time and being faithful as the church. And there may, because there may have been times where it was sort of obvious what a pastor should do, what it was sort of obvious what a church should do. There was this clear formula. There were tips and techniques that could induce a pastor or a church to follow the formula and behave properly. I mean, it may have been so obvious that we stopped looking inside and examining what was really going on in ourselves, in our culture. We were like parents who were only interested in getting acceptable behavior out of our children. We trusted the formula because for a while it seemed to work. I mean, since the Second World War uh, until 2000, about two-thirds of Americans attended church. Now less than half do. But why did that formula work? This summer, I read a book entitled uh, Jesus and John Wayne. And part of the argument it makes is that so much of what we insisted God wanted from us as a church was motivated less by faith than it was motivated by anxiety around the Cold War. Right? Because it was, it was the godless communists who uh, downplayed sexual difference. Well, if, if, if that's what the godless communists did, well, then we got to be, you know, we have to have clearly defined roles for men and for women and condemn any uh, deviation from that. It didn't matter what was really going on inside of those individuals. They just needed to behave. I mean, that, I mean, that would at least be the logic behind something like Jerry Falwell saying, well, 9-11 happened because of the gays. What? But that doesn't work for people anymore. Before the, the, the uh, preacher of Hebrews prescribes any behavior, so here, here's what's central. It says, the preacher insists that we hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Our hope is not in a formula. 
Our hope is a person. It's in Jesus Christ. We don't rely on tips and techniques. We refuse to reduce the mission of God to a system of punishments and rewards that induce certain behavior and ensure we're spending our time doing this and this and not that. That may simplify things, may even make them seem obvious, but when it seems obvious, we're no longer holding fast to the hope we profess. We no longer feel compelled to engage the source of our hope. Formulas don't require a relationship. They're ways of avoiding a relationship. Not with God, not with one another. To operate out of hope requires us to recognize that until that promised future is a reality, we are driven by something that exists beyond our grasp. It exists in the realm of mystery. Like Paul says in Romans, hope in what is seen, what is right in front of you, that's not hope. Hope is beyond, it's, it's mysterious. And that's not to say, oh, well, let's just throw out all the old ways we used to do church. It's time to reinvent everything. No. I mean, that is as misguided as saying we need to do things exactly the way we used to do them. There are, of course, some things that the church remains committed to doing. But we must always remain open to revising how those things are done. We must continue listening. I like what our text says here. It says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. The preacher does not assume it's obvious how we spur one another on toward love and good deeds. There's no formula. There's some consideration involved. We have to think this through. I mean, that's why I hope we can get this, uh, this worship grant, worship renewal grant would be an opportunity to, to try some things we might otherwise not do. And when it's over, do some consideration. Did this, did this effort help to spur one another on toward love and good deeds? And at times we may get it wrong, even when we feel we've given it proper consideration. I mean, that happens. But our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is not in our ability to get it right every time and use our time exactly the way we were supposed to. Our hope is in God, who, as our text says, is faithful. Who has demonstrated faithfulness over and over and over again. So yeah, we are in the midst of massive cultural change. The old formulas don't work, but it's never been about formulas. It's always been about hope, about living into that hope, about being a community which gives fresh expression to that hope through love and good deeds. Even in anxious times, especially in anxious times, 
we need to hold unswervingly to our hope in a God who is faithful, who has demonstrated that faithfulness over and over again. In the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, amen.